This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. It's a brand new year. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. At the start of a new year, you might be thinking that you didn't read enough last year and this year, one of your New Year's resolutions could be to read more. A good way to get more information and use your time more effectively could be to check out the Blinkist app. With Blinkist, in a very short time, you'll get all the best need-to-know information from the best non-fiction books that are out there. If this is something you want to try out, you can use our link for a free seven-day trial. Head to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash what you will learn for your free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of our part two of our three-part series on mastery. Today, we're talking all about the apprenticeship phase. Episode one, part one, we were talking all about finding your calling. So, each of us has something deep within us that is unique to us that we need to discover. It's like a seed planted deep within us. And most people ignore this or most people never go in that direction. But importantly, we need to find that. And now part two is all about developing our skills, learning the ropes, and starting off on this path to mastery. In the stories of all the greatest masters that Greeno delves into, past and present, we can always detect a phase in their lives which all of their future powers were in this developmental phase, like the crystals of a butterfly. So this part of their lives, it takes about five to ten years, but in every case, it always receives very little attention because really, retrospectively, it doesn't add to the narratives we weave about the masters, but they were in this dependency phase where they were learning and taking on their apprenticeship. Thinking about a guy, you know, like Elon Musk, someone who I admire, I've never really heard about that phase when he was 10 to 20, developing the skills and the software and the coding before he started PayPal. Same with jobs, same with everyone who achieves great success that you come across. Yeah, you never hear about the early, early days of them learning the ropes because I guess it's pretty boring. You only just hear about the overnight success when they either float their company on the stock exchange or whether they paint the Mona Lisa or whatever grand masterpiece they create. We just hear about from that time onwards. We don't hear about when they're slaving away doing shitty little sketches in their book or creating some really basic website. So in this apprenticeship phase, the master's mind isn't too different to others, even us listening right now. Under the surface, however, their minds are transforming in ways that we cannot see, but it really contains the seeds of their future success. This apprenticeship phase, by its very nature, must be conducted by each individual in his or her own way. You can't precisely follow the lead of someone else who's done it before, or you can't just read one book and follow the steps and end up being a master. It's unique to us because we each have our own unique calling and we each have our own unique path to getting there. But in this phase, this is the part in our life where we finally declare our independence, establish who we are, and say, this is the path I'm heading towards, and I'm in my apprenticeship phase at the moment. So these lessons in the apprenticeship phase transcend all fields and historical periods because they connected to something essential about the human psychology and how the brain itself functions. The principle is simple. The goal of the apprenticeship is not money, it's not a good position, a title, or a diploma, but it's really a transformation of your mind and your character. And this is the first transformation on the way to becoming a master. You enter your career as this outsider. You're naive, you're full of these misconceptions that you've picked up along the way. Your head's full of dreams and fantasies about the future. You think you're pretty awesome. You think you're going to go in there and change things. But your knowledge at this point 
is really subjective. It's really surface level. It's probably based on emotions, insecurity, and you've got really, really limited experience. So you need to really admit to yourself that this is where you're at the moment and submit to the fact that it does take a lot of learning and a lot of this apprenticeship phase in order to get to where you want to go. So in this process, you're going to really transform yourself from someone who's really scattered and impatient into someone who's very disciplined and focused and with a mind that can handle complexity. In this process to maximize your utilization of your apprenticeship, you must be choosing places of work and positions that are going to offer the greatest possibilities for learning. Practical knowledge is the ultimate commodity. Uh, it's going to far outstrip any paltry pay increases you might get or any little promotions you might get. And you might feel like you're in this lucrative position, but those external rewards are absolutely pitiful compared to the learning and the knowledge and the long-term mastery that you're going to develop if you're focusing on the learning instead. Yeah, delay gratification is something that comes up in almost every book. If your time horizon is your 10% or 15% pay rise or whatever over the next two or three years, Compare that to someone's time horizon who is, you know, the end of their life, you know, the next 50 or 60 years, that's the kind of the time horizon of masters. And if you're looking at that perspective, getting a little shitty little pay rise doesn't even come close to something else in terms of developing the learning and the skills that are going to help you in the longer run. So in terms of this apprenticeship phase, there are three modes and you need to think of them as three steps that are somewhat overlapping. And then after the three steps, there are there are strategies in which to perform this apprenticeship phase. So the first step or the first mode of your apprenticeship phase is deep observation. And this is largely the passive mode of the apprenticeship. So this observation mode, it can be in the context of the very longer term of your career as a whole. I think it applies also to when you just enter any kind of career or new environment where you're subject to something completely new in terms of learning. You're moving into a world with its own rules, procedures and social dynamics and say if you enter this new career or this new industry, you get to think dec- for decades, people have compiled all this knowledge about how to get things done in a particular field, and each generation has improved upon it on the past. So you might be this person coming in, young, and you're out there to change the world, and you get told to go and change the water cooler. But this culture has its customs and ways of doing things there for a reason, and it's something in this deep observation mode, you need to accept and there's probably a reason why everything in its way and you can't come and just tear it all down. That's it. So as part of your observation mode, the first thing you're observing is, I guess, the the rules and procedures and the structures that govern success in that environment. You know, that's the thing of, hey, this is how we do it here. And some rules are going to be communicated directly, but generally you're going to just have to be looking at them and, and recognizing these rules for yourself. But the second thing that you need to observe and potentially more importantly, is sort of the power relationships and the the social dynamics that exist within the group. So not just the rules and procedures for how the work gets done, but looking at the interactions between different people as well. So who really has the control? Through whom does the communications flow? Who is sort of on the way up? Who is on the way down? What sorts of internal struggles and battles are people going through in order to achieve their success? So your task upon entering these new worlds and new cultures and industry or whatever it might be is to observe and absorb this reality as deeply as possible. The greatest mistake you can make in the initial months of your apprenticeship or entering a new job uh, is to imagine that you have to get attention and, and impress everybody around you and, and prove yourself. If these thoughts dominate your mind and close it off from the reality around you, any positive attention you receive is deceptive because it's not based on your skills or anything real. And I think that goes against the grain 
for what we're after. If you're entering a new new job or anything like that, you want to make sure everyone th- sees value in you and you have a good first impression mm. and everything like that and speak up in meetings and sound intelligent. But this isn't the goal at the start. You're meant to sit there, listen to everybody, absorb all the power dynamics and uh, follow this path instead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to do because coming out of university, you probably think you're the new hotshot up and comer and you want to prove yourself, but that's a wrong way to go about it. The other approach that I like, Green says that you need to think of yourself like you're some anthropologist, you're studying this alien culture. It's something you've never seen before and you need to get in there and dig out the little nuances that nobody else is seeing. You're not there to try to change everything. You're not, try to, you're not there to try to win straight away. The first phase is just studying, observing and understanding. And then you move through, there is like this overlapping phase here as you move through to step two and this is the practice mode. This is all about skills acquisition. So at some point, you've been passive for a while now. You've been sitting there listening, observing all the dynamics and everything. And next, you're gonna, as you progress through these initial months of observation, you're going to enter the most critical part of the apprenticeship. And this is all about the practice towards the acquisition of skills. So if you think about any activity like riding a bike, we all know that it is easier to watch someone and follow their lead than to listen and read instructions. If you give a seven-year-old a book on how to ride a bike and then they jump on the bike and you throw the training wheels off, this is not going to work. They're going to fall down every day of the week. Yeah, exactly. You can, like reading might be the very, very first step towards it, but getting the practical experience from somebody else guiding you and showing you how to do it is really important. And then, of course, even more important is you jumping on that bike yourself. You probably wobble. You probably come off a couple of times, but keep getting on the bike and learning it for yourself. And of course, the more you do these kinds of things, the easier it becomes. You've got to realize that, yes, you've been observing in, in the first mode and you probably think you've got an understanding, but as soon as you try to do it yourself, you're going to realize that it's actually a lot tougher than it looks. Yeah, we learn through actually doing, not through theorizing. The bloke who's on the, the couch with a burger and a few beers on the Friday night watching 10 hours of footy each week, he's not getting any better at footy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's probably for going sure. backwards if This guy comes up a lot now, episode. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. He doesn't do a whole lot if he's sitting on the couch. I think his name changes every beers. time. I think Billy <laughs> he was Bobby. There's he evolved into someone else. <laughs> but we've got to realize that in this initial period, like it's going to be tough. We're going to go through some seriously, seriously accelerated learning. There's going to be a hell of a lot of... Um, or seemingly exponential returns at the start. Like we're going to be learning so quick, improving so quickly. And so there's a few things that we need to uh, take note of here throughout going through this phase. And so it's essential that we begin with one skill that we can master and that's going to serve as the foundation for the others. There's so much that you need to learn and it can be tempting to go out and do a little bit of everything and try to learn everything at the same time. But you really need to focus on one vital skill that you can get really, really good at that can serve as your foundation for learning the next one. Yeah, you need to avoid at all costs the idea that you can manage learning several skills at a, at a time. Think about back to eat that frog, the one thing. Think about what's that one skill if you learn to have highest leverage over all others. And whatever that one skill is, that's going to be the focus for your, your learning in this, in this phase. Another important thing to take note of is these initial learning stages, uh, they're inevitably going to involve a lot of tedium. There's a lot of time where you're um, doing things that seem pretty boring and pretty tedious and you feel like they might be like wasted time and you just want to go to the next step. But it's vitally important that you sort of uh, train those grooves in your brain and get really good at doing this one thing first. Yeah, it toughens you up. He likens it to going to the gym like the mind, this boredom and the tedium of practicing this skill. 
the more you do it, the more tough your brain's going to get and be able to have the positive feedback loop and work harder at your skill and you're going to get a bit better and have the accelerated learning in the process. Yeah, he says it's better to dedicate you know, two or three hours of intense focus on one thing rather than doing a full day of eight hours of diffused concentration because if you can focus on improving one thing, it's going to lead you to much better results down the end than trying to do a little bit of everything but not really getting anywhere. Yeah, and whenever we practice and learning our new skills, we're transforming ourselves in the process. We're revealing to ourselves new capabilities that were latent within us. And then we also develop emotionally. Whatever, what offers immediate pleasure, that becomes a distraction and empty entertainment to help pass the time. You might see something like going home to watch Netflix is something that doesn't compare to working on your skill because the Netflix watching doesn't add value to what you're doing. Now, the third mode of this apprenticeship phase is the active mode. And that's the experimentation phase. So we've gone through the observation, we've gone through the practice and skill acquisition. Now we're up to the experimentation. So this is the point where uh, we've got a lot of those base level skills. We've probably got a solid understanding of what we need to do. But this experimentation where you're mixing things together, trying new things, trying to do something different, innovative, creative, this is the vital step on your path to mastery. Yeah, we need to gauge our progress and whether we're still, if there's still gaps in our knowledge. This is the most risky and nerve-wracking because it could mean doing something like taking on responsibility, initiating a project or some sort, doing work that exposes you to criticism or even the public. We're really at this stage uh, hopping onto the arena, exposing what our weaknesses are, trying something new and you might get shot down in the process. So this is probably the, the step that a lot of people don't do after they've acquired skills. Yeah, I suppose there's two ways people do this wrong. One is they either never get there, they never want to take the risks and the other is they probably want to jump straight to this end point and they jump in the arena and they stuff something up and realize this is too hard then they probably go back to the safe box. So the important part is to follow the process and do this at the end Uh, and so yeah, not being too weak not to try it and not being uh, too uh, eager to get to that point straight away. And of course, you're going to know when your apprenticeship phase is over when you feel there's nothing left to learn in this environment And it's time to declare your independence and move to another place to continue another apprenticeship and expand your skill base. So it's a continuous process, this apprenticeship phase in in some sense. Yeah, most certainly. We always need to stay a student. And Green's got some great strategies here for completing the ideal apprenticeship, as he calls it. And so throughout history, he's analyzed all these different masters and looked at the types of things that they were doing in these early learning phases. And one vital one, which is an important shift in your perspective, is you need to value learning over money because it's a simple law of human psychology that our thoughts will be dominated by and tend to revolve around whatever we value the most. So if we're valuing money, we come straight out of university or college and think, okay, I've been slaving away and studying time to go and earn a paycheck, then you're going to be focused on whatever job gives you the most money. But unfortunately, the job that gives you the most money probably is not going to be the job that gives you the most learning. So we need to change tack there and think about which types of things are most important for me to learn and how can I value my learning as more important than the paycheck. Another thing we need to do in this apprenticeship phase is keep expanding your horizons. So in your apprenticeship, no one's really going to help you and give you direction. In fact, the odds are really against you. If you're just sitting there as an employee waiting for the professional development services to come from your employer (laughs) and you keep blaming them for not training you up enough, Mm. that's the wrong way to go about it. I think you get to go out there, probably invest a slice of your income into your own development and take all of this into your own hands. 
Yeah, slice of your income or a slice of your time as well. Like, So you can't just think that the only learning you're going to do is from your boss. Your boss is going to teach you everything you need to know. That's completely wrong. You need to be thinking, who else within this organization can you learn from? What other types of seminars or events or extracurricular stuff you could go to? What types of books can you read? What types of things can you do on the side? Working for free. There's all of these things that uh, are going to be different ways to expand your horizons and keep learning from different aspects. I like this one here, moving towards resistance and pain. By nature, we humans will shrink from anything that seems possibly painful or overtly difficult. And if there's something that is giving you resistance, that's probably the thing that you need to be looking at the most. There's a quote by your favorite author, uh, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't think it's Joseph Campbell. I think it's, it's a Star not. Wars, but it came from Campbell's book. <laughs> The cave we most fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. Mm. And I think this is what that's touching on. The thing that you're most fearful of and you're getting the most resistance, that's probably the thing you should be working on the most. Similarly, you need to apprentice yourself in failure. So when a machine malfunctions, you don't take it personally. You just need to get in there and tinker a little bit and and move a few of the cogs around to make sure everything's working in the right place. You need to view yourself as a bit of a machine as well. You need to sort of detach yourself from the machine that is you trying to do something different. So if it doesn't quite work, it's not a reflection on you. It's just the reflection on the machine that you've built to this point. So the machine probably needs a few tweaks, might need a bit of an upgrade, but you've got to realize that that failure is vitally important for for helping you on the next step. Yeah, if you think about it, there's really two different types of failure. The first failure comes from never trying out your ideas because you're afraid or waiting for the perfect time. The second type of failure comes from a bold and adventurous spirit. You're trying to do shit and it just doesn't work and you fail. So we want to be going for the second failure. The first failure of not trying to do anything, you know, in the long run, looking back in your life, do you want to be someone who just sat there their whole life and didn't actually try and do anything? Or do you want to be someone who went out there, took a few swings, had a few strikes and then also striked out a few times as well? Bang, bang. Another one is we need to advance through trial and error. So as we said, it's, Good to observe and learn at the very start, but you need to shift from some point from just that learning to the actual trying thing. So you need to try stuff. Obviously, you're going to stuff up a little bit, but it's going to point you in the right direction eventually. Yeah, we need to avoid the trap of a set career path. You're not sure where your path is going to lead, but you're taking full advantage of the openness of information, of all the knowledge and the skills that you're at your disposal. In the new age, and this is where everything's trending in the workforce, those who follow a single rigid path in their youth, they're going to find themselves very fragile. When things change and industries get disrupted, they're going to end up in a very bad way. But if you're someone who's going through trial and error, this is really directly from anti-fragile as well in a sense, right? You're going to be someone who can take the opportunities on offer because of those disruptions. These are all vitally important strategies like the value in learning over money and expanding your horizons and the idea of you know trial and error and experience a little bit of failure. And the, a big vital strategy here in our apprenticeship phase is what Green says, the mentor dynamic and absorbing the master's power. So we need to find a mentor that's been there and done that, that can sort of guide us along our journey. To actually learn new skills, which is the goal of the apprenticeship phase, this requires humility. First, accepting that there's people out there who knows a lot more than you. That's a good first step. And their superiority is not a function of natural talent or privilege, but it's really just time or experience valuing that time and experience of other people is something that you can actually learn from. You need to 
have that sense of humility and you've got to understand that our only concern in these early stages is acquiring practical knowledge in the most efficient manner possible. So the purpose here of the apprenticeship phase is that we need mentors whose authority you recognize and whom you're going to submit to. So you've got to realize there's someone out there who's a few steps ahead of you on your journey and recognize that you should follow their footsteps. The mentor doesn't give you a shortcut, but what they can do is streamline the process. So they can iron out a few of the kinks. They might save you from a few trials and errors or they can at least point you in the right direction to say, hey, this is what you need to do. Just by getting a mentor, it doesn't shave years off your journey. It's still the same length of apprenticeship, but they're going to streamline you and point you in the right direction more often than not. Yeah, absolutely. Life's really short and we've only got so much time and energy to expand. If you go the slow way without a mentor, right, you can go 40, 50. You might not reach this mastery status that we actually want. If you get a mentor, someone who's 40, 50, you learn that and you get to the same level at 30, then you can really reach much, much higher uh, levels of, of mastery through this mentor dynamic. What makes the dynamic so intense and productive is the emotional quality of the relationship between the apprentice and the mentor. By nature, mentors feel emotionally invested in your education. And I guess, you know, what's in it for me? That's what you're giving the mentor uh, as as part of the reciprocation. Yeah, this ties into some of Robert Greene's other books, 48 Laws of Power, The Laws of Human Nature. In order to entice the right master to serve as your mentor, you need to mix in a strong element of self-interest. So that was one of the laws of power. You shouldn't be trying to get people to do stuff because you've done something for them in the past. You need to say, hey, this is what's in it for you. Here's the self-interest element that's going to get them over the line. You need to have something tangible and practical to offer them in addition to your youth and energy. So I know that uh, it wasn't in this book, but I've heard uh, both Robert Greene and Ryan Holiday talk about this in the past. Like Ryan Holiday was a young kid and he got to work with Robert Greene as his research assistant. And so obviously Robert Greene, the master at the time, Ryan Holiday was the the student, I guess. Robert Greene acted as his mentor. There was obviously a mixture there of both the youthful energy that Ryan Holiday was able to bring in terms of exposing uh, Robert Greene to a new audience. That was sort of like the what's in it for him, getting him on social media, getting him out and promoting himself. And of course, for Ryan Holiday, he was learning from the master. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see... Um, Ryan Holiday's work really look a little bit like Robert Green. Ryan Holiday is a very young man relative to Robert Green, so I think that's a, epitomizes the, uh, the the dynamic. So when we're really looking for your mentor, I think it's uh, well understood that all masters and people of power, all the big dogs out there, they suffer a lot of demands of their time. They're very busy people, and they got too much information to absorb. So in a sense, it, it is a bit of a task to get them invested in you. Importantly, Green says here, you shouldn't be shying away from anything menial or secretarial. Uh, You can't just say, hey, I want you to be my mentor and I want you to teach me for four hours a day and and that's that. You need to obviously find your way in. So it might be the very start. You might be, you know, filtering through the emails. I was actually just on the way here listening to Adam Grant on Tim Ferriss. He was talking about how he had these triage people who were people who wanted to study some kind of organizational um, structure and masters and they they want to learn from adam grant and maybe a first step in is sort of triaging his emails and saying which of these need to reply and which ones don't so that's like a might seem like a pretty menial task but what you're doing there is you're getting behind the scenes you're trying to you're getting to understand how somebody truly works you shouldn't just be seeing that as a chore of you know i'm just going to read through this person's emails and delete a few and say hey reply to these ones it can be Mm. vitally important work to do some of the the boring stuff yeah this whole thing about a mentor uh Quite lately, I've been on a bit of a journey with this. I 
originally thought because we both read so many books, you know, we're reading books from guys like Robert Greene, like we're reading now, uh, who have gone so deep into topics and decades and decades of experience. If I meet up with a mentor in person, you know, what extra value can they add relative to all the books that we've read? That was my previous perception, but I was recently assigned a mentor through uh, an organization and holy shit, I was like blown away. It was probably the most productive hour of my life. Um, I had no idea what was coming. She basically just sat me down and, and pointed out probably five different things that I wasn't seeing at the time and different skills I could be working on. And I could just tell from five years looking back to that one meeting, it has really accelerated the process like Big Greeno has been selling on us. Are you the same with looking at mentors like that, Ash Joe? Yeah, certainly. I don't think I can point to a specific uh, you know, ongoing long-term mentor relationship. There are definitely certain uh, types of people that I can that I've met up with from time to time and it is just that idea of, you know, you want that person-to-person access with someone however you can get it and they're not going to say, hey, go do A, B and C and you'll be a master but what they are going to do, they're going to streamline the process a little, they're going to show you some things that you hadn't quite thought of. They might say, hey, don't don't bother about doing this so much, you're wasting your time instead, focus on path B instead. Yeah, and if you get them invested in your education and your development they can also open new doors for you, give you new relationships and contacts and, and whatnot. So I think Robert, he spells out the, the whole phase of the apprenticeship really well. Yeah, phenomenal. I really liked how he says as well, like towards the end of this mentor phase, like every mentor has their strengths and weaknesses. So it's almost like at the start, you need to become infatuated with them, put them up on a pedestal, learn everything you can from them. And then sort of after a couple of years, as you progress through your own learning and apprenticeship phase, he says you need to sort of start to identify some of their weaknesses, identify (laughs) some of the things they're not so good at, some of the things that annoy you a little bit so you can learn what not to do as well. So, And then you can obviously start to move away from just this person's a guru, you need to do everything they say, you need to start to move towards that actually maybe not everything they say. Yeah, definitely. And in any event, we're going to ideally through your mentorship, you can actually outgrow the master and the mentor. So you can have you can have several mentors in your life. So they're like stepping stones along the way uh, to mastery if you do it all right. So in summary, Robert Greene's apprenticeship phase after obviously part one of the episode, we discovered what our last task was. Then we need to move through the three modes of learning. The first is that passive mode where we go in there with no assumptions and we're looking to observe how does this field or how does this organization operate in terms of the structural work but also in terms of the social work as well. The second phase is moving towards that practice where we're starting to try things, we're starting to build our skills, probably going to be a little menial and tedious at the start but it's vital that we establish a couple of key skills that will serve as our foundation and then moving into the third phase where we're experimenting, we're trying different stuff, we're taking a few risks. There's probably going to be a little bit of failure, but we need to mix and match our different skills in order to create something new. In this apprenticeship phase, there's a few strategies that we can undertake in order to maximize the utility here. We need to value learning over money, expand your horizons, move towards resistance and pain, push to the point of failure, take on risks and advance through trial and error. And of course, go and find yourself a mentor to streamline your whole process to mastery. So that's part two. Next episode is going to be part three of Mastery, which is all about creativity. So now that we've gone through this apprenticeship phase, we've learned the ropes, we've sort of got a bit of a handle on the basics and we're on the right track. The next and most important phase is to start to bring your own initiative, some new ideas, a bit of innovation and a lot of creativity in order to create something truly unique and masterful.
you really enjoyed that episode, remember, that's just a summary of the book. I reckon you're going to enjoy actually reading the real book a whole lot more. So if it's something you want to commit to, the most pain-free way of doing it is using our link. So just click the button read more in the show description and there'll be a link that goes straight to Book Depository where in four minutes time, you'll have the book ordered and on its way to your front door.